one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, you guys, so I have a bone to pick with the president. I mean, like this week, like many weeks, I suppose. Um, we are the original thing that is very legal and very cool, not his outreach to the Kremlin to build a tower in Moscow. Seriously. Right? This like, podcast. Very legal. Very, extremely legal. Okay. Very cool. Very extremely cool. cool. And we were legal and cool before it was cool to be legal and cool. I, we fact, were legal and cool before he tried to do business in Moscow. That's right. We were we were very legal and very cool from the first time we sat down with around a conference table before there was even a jungle studio and just were the people who figured shot out the that shit about being things. very legal is very cool. That's right. Yeah. Whether it was January twenty sixteen or well into June twenty sixteen. So why didn't we trademark that phrase? Also, we never stopped being very legal and very cool at any point. So like, you think we can They're get arguing about whether they stopped being very legal and very cool in January of 2016. We started earlier and we kept on doing it. You know what this means? What? We can build a rational security tower in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be very cool. <laughs> <laughs> or very legal. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the, of course, the very legal and very cool edition, which basically is an edition on any day that ends with the Y. Yeah, a- any of our editions. Of course Cl- it is. Yeah, naturally. I'm Shane Harris, cool reporter who sometimes writes about legal issues, <laughs> joined by very cool legal team here, Ben, Tammy, and Susan. Hi, everybody. Hi. I don't know how legal I am, but I'm pretty cool. You're definitely cool. You do. You got like a cool jacket on right now. Thank you. Ben got outed as a non-lawyer on Twitter this week. As, as happens periodically <laughs> in my life. They're on to you, Ben. <laughs> so he said, are you aware that Mr. Wittes is Isn't not a lawyer? Even a lawyer? Hasn't even gone to law school? We just said, true facts. So, <laughs> for many years, uh, Tammy and I had this joke that my tombstone was going to say, Benjamin Wittes, who wasn't even a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. um, and unfortunately, that got displaced. At, so I... There are these things that people always append to my name. One of them for years and years was former Washington Post editorial writer, Benjamin Wittes, right? right. That I, however long I live, I will just always be a former Washington Post editorial writer. Right. And the one I really hate, though it's true, and I'm proud of the fact of it's true, is friend of Comey. Because like that's <laughs> mm-hmm. the one that takes away my individual identity. Yeah, you're just um, here to serve someone else's. My favorite of these is who isn't even a lawyer. Because yeah. I, I actually think that's one of the fun things about my career is that I've always written about law and I'm not a lawyer. I think you should adjust your NBC contracts. You're introduced that way. As Joining us now, I mean, the press daily, Benjamin Wittes, non-lawyer. Fraudulent legal analyst, Benjamin Wittes. (laughs) Benjamin Wittes, random dude. (laughs) You'll always be defrocked journalist to me. Yeah. You're the only one who calls me that. (laughs) On the podcast this week, Robert Mueller says that Michael Flynn has cooperated extensively in multiple investigations, including about Russian interference in the election. 
A new guilty plea from Michael Cohen changes our understanding of Trump's ties to Russia. And is Israel getting ready for a war or just an election? Let's start with the Flynn sentencing memo. Um, many people in the Washington Post newsroom were hanging out until about 830 at night waiting for Robert Mueller to finally reveal. their expectations were I, over Flynnflated. I think oh. – uh, I will say I think expectations <laughs> were running fairly moderate they within the newsroom. They were intrigued. Okay. This is going downhill fast, yeah, right. people. There was pizza to be had and whatnot. But um, so so to recap on this, and maybe not everybody's actually had a chance to look at the, the document, which is uh, – just to be clear, this is the memo that Robert Mueller has given to the judge saying we do not recommend any jail time for Michael Flynn for the crime that he admitted to of lying to the FBI pursuant to the Russian investigation because he has been so super helpful on a number of different things. What are those things you might ask? Not entirely clear because much of this memo is actually redacted. Um, but we do know some things that seem to jump out. Uh, there were 19 interviews that Mueller's office says Flynn gave with the special counsel. And um, with other Justice Department officials, Correct. Right? This is not – it's not just the Mueller probe, so-called, that Flynn has been cooperating with. There's this other investigation which is totally blacked out, intriguingly so. We can talk about that. And I think that there are indications that there may be at least one more. But um, Ben, let's start with what do we make of the extensiveness of the cooperation, which we do know about, given the number of times that Mueller says Flynn sat for interviews and also the fact that they are not recommending any prison time. All right. So I, I think the, uh, the three key phrases in the thing are – 19 meetings, substantial assistance. That's the, the standard under uh, Rule 5, uh, 5K1 in the sentencing guidelines for a downward departure is did you provide substantial assistance? They make clear that he did and they further make clear that the timing of that assistance was really important in encouraging certain other witnesses to come forward and tell the truth. And by the way, I think that may tie back to some of your previous reporting, Shane. And um, the third was the number of different investigations that he's, he's participated in and helped with. And I think when you put those three things together, there's really only one conclusion that I know of that's safe to come to, which is that Everything that Bob Mueller needs from Michael Flynn, he has gotten. Whether that does not mean, you know, the walls are about to come tumbling down. It doesn't mean, you know, that Donald Trump is toast. But it does mean that to the extent that important f things that the investigation hinges on depend on Michael Flynn, that is material that has been made available to Mueller in and others in a form that they are satisfied with enough to tell a federal judge, don't give this guy any jail time. He's done everything we could reasonably have asked him to do. Now, in addition, I think in combination with the Cohen plea, where you know the scope of cooperation appears to be immense, and Cohen has been pretty clear about what that, you know, how how broad that is. When you put those two things together, I think it is reasonable to say that to the extent that Trump has ex significant exposure in the Trump-Russia, Lafayette Russe components of this investigation, there is a lot of reason to expect that Mueller 
knows the answers to those key questions. Uh, that w The remaining question to me is how much exposure does he have? And that's, I think, the significance of those redactions and the fact that Bob Mueller really does know how to play a you know, hand close to his vest. And we're going to have to wait till he's good and ready for us to know the answer to that. Susan, I want to know you think about the same questions. And also, the fact that he has gone to sentencing now suggests to me anyway that Mueller does not necessarily expect to call Flynn as a witness in any trials. Otherwise, why take the risk of not having some kind of leverage over him? Or maybe that's overreading the situation. But, you know, A, what do you think of what, what you know, we see in the document? And B, does this indicate that kind of Flynn is in the clear now and of no longer of any use directly to the probe or any subsequent prosecutions? So I, I think that might be a little bit of of an overread. I, I do think it's you know it's a clear sign that the you know ongoing cooperation has sort of ceased. I don't know um, you know if it's if they would have been hedging. You know I, I don't think that they they view him as a, a witness that is material and central to some future prosecution. You know that said, I do think that there is um, some pretty powerful messaging in going to sentencing now, and particularly in recommending that he not serve any jail time and. You know, Donald Trump is out there dangling pardons all over the place. And this is Bob Mueller saying, you know what, if you come to federal investigators, if you tell us the truth, if you cooperate fully, we also can give you a deal. And that deal can can have no jail time whatsoever. And so I think that also is showing, you know, look, pardons aren't the only game in town here. You know, the ability to cooperate with federal, federal authorities and, and to get a cooperation agreement, that's a pretty powerful thing as well. Um, you know, I, I do think sort of this mystery investigation investigation fully redacted is pretty intriguing. Um, you know, one thing that's really interesting about Michael Flynn, whenever we look at all the people who are cooperating, is he's the only person who was actually in the administration. He's the only person who had actual sort of ongoing access to classified information, was a part of those discussions. I do think that is relevant on all kinds of issues, sort of the person who's actually in the room. Now, the one thing that Michael Flynn probably can't be cooperating on is the entire obstruction investigation, because this all occurs after he leaves, except that he does have in that little noggin of his the one critical piece of information of whether or not Donald Trump directed him to tell Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak that they intended to lift sanctions. And the reason why I think that's so important even to the obstruction investigation that occurs after he departs the White House is that casts all of Donald Trump's actions in a completely different light. If he's having these conversations with Jim Comey about letting Mike Flynn go, you know, because he thinks maybe the guy screwed up and said something that wasn't totally true to the FBI, you know, there are serious concerns with that. If instead Donald Trump knows full well the underlying facts, knows that he directed Flynn to do this, knows that Flynn lied to federal investigators in order to conceal the president or president-elect's own actions, suddenly all the behavior that we see from those original conversations with Jim Comey up until actually firing the former FBI director, I, I do I do think that that pretty dramatically strengthens the argument that no, what we are seeing is not some legal technicality here, but uh, but but a really clear cut case of obstruction of justice. Tammy, so I just want to take us back to the podcasts that we were recording during that period 
after the election, right around before the inauguration, right around the inauguration, before Flynn was fired. And let's remember all the crap this guy was involved in, even beyond the Russia element. Okay, he was reportedly negotiating a deal with the Turks to kidnap Fethullah Gulen, and and Who for, hasn't right? a little side business, <laughs> a little light kidnapping plot, right. as the president would. Say. He was in. He was deeply involved in the transition, including during a period when the Emiratis and the Israelis were apparently, according to Adam Entis and the New Yorker you know, deeply enmeshed in trying to influence and shape the incoming president and the incoming administration's attitudes on key questions of policy. And Mike Pence was heading the transition team, let's remember as well. So I feel like even if we put the president to the side just for a moment, I'm imagining all the things that General Flynn knows that now Bob Mueller also knows. And I think that gets us to some of the criminal investigations and other investigations that might not be directly related to Mueller's portfolio. The other thing I wanted to raise, though, is that during this period, as we were all observing and reflecting on Flynn's conduct, both what we saw ourselves and what was being reported, we were floored. This is a guy who had senior positions in the U.S. national security establishment, who was a military officer, you know, a flag officer, and had done these things. And we spoke about it then as a real abdication of responsibility and a betrayal of his oath and his commitment to public service. And here he is. He's not going to have any jail time. And, you know, given the substantial cooperation, maybe that's justified, but it does leave a question in my mind that I wanted to raise. Okay, so let me let me start by addressing that question because I actually have no anxieties on this point. Um, Alexander Vanderswan uh, lied to Mueller uh, and his people, uh, the FBI, and was uh, given uh, 14 days or 30 days, I, I forget which, uh, on the 1001 violation within the same guideline range. He did not provide any substantial cooperation. Uh, George Papadopoulos, uh, the prosecutors came in and said he actively did not provide substantial cooperation, uh, substantial assistance. And uh, he got seven days, I believe, uh, or 14 days. I forget 14 Um, at camp. Yeah, at camp, (laughs) as he says. Um, And so – Look, when you plead out to one count of a you know a, a, to a one thousand one violation, uh, the guideline range on that is very short to begin with, and the range that you're talking about that's why people take these pleas because you know if if you had brought a full indictment against Mike Flynn, then you're looking at real time, but you know you reduce it to those one thousand one viol a couple one thousand one violations, and the guideline range is is actually short to begin with. And, and just to remind too, we also discussed in the podcast the fact that they, all these things that Tammy mentions that he was under investigation for weren't part of ultimately this, this plea suggests that Mueller couldn't make them stick. But and, go ahead. And and there's some other you know he he got some other benefits here, mm-hmm. which is that his son is not charged. Right. And so you know the the first big thing is pleading versus not pleading. Right. Don't be Paul Manafort. You know when somebody offers you a deal, and it's it involves very little jail time. It's usually a good idea to take that deal, uh, particularly if you're guilty as hell. And 
The second issue is within the confines of the group of people who've accepted these deals on the basis of pleading out on 1001 violations, should there be a difference between the ones who provide substantial assistance and those who do not? The answer to that question has to be yes, because otherwise, why not take the deal and screw the prosecutors? And there has to be a reason to be Michael Cohen and Michael Flynn, not George Papadopoulos. One other thing on, a, on an unrelated matter, when you know there is a possible resolution to the question that Shane and Susan framed of you know, does this mean there aren't going to be major cases based on Michael Flynn's comments or, or, or cooperation and they're not holding sentencing over him anymore? One possibility is that if the major output of Mueller's investigation is a report, not a set of indictments because you can't bring cases against the president because – basically a bunch of other people fell in line and provided information. It could be that the substance of his cooperation, which is telling his story in a form that they can put responsibly into a report in a factually rigorous way, has already happened. I agree with Ben, but am more aligned with Tammy's view on this, right? I, I understand all of that as a as a practical reality here. But I do think that that what we're seeing is this being treated as if it is genuinely a process crime, as Lindsey Graham described it, right? This sort of this small technical violation that wasn't really that big of a deal. And, and I think whenever you step back and think about what Michael Flynn did, the position of trust he held, the gravity of the breach, right? So put to the side the question of whether or not Donald Trump directed him to say that he was lifting sanctions. The Obama administration imposed sanctions on the Russians for interfering in the U.S. democratic process. This individual who was the who was going to become the national security advisor picked up the phone without informing the sitting administration and told them, just hang tight because we're going to lift sanctions. That is egregious. And now that wasn't the open position of an incoming administration and elections have, con- have consequences. They did it in secret. They lied to the American public about it. They lied to federal investigators. That alone, outrageous. Beyond that, they're sitting around a table with Turks, Saudis, all kinds of other complicated allies, I guess we will call them, essentially selling important U.S. foreign policy interests for money, for their own personal business interests in the purest, most open transactional way. Now, maybe Mueller wasn't prepared to uh, to prove that in a court of law, but this is egregious beyond the pale stuff and it actually is emblematic not just of Flynn's behavior, but of all kinds of people who came in with the administration who are still in the administration and are still part of the national security establishment. Michael Flynn and Jared Kushner were the two who hatched this little plot to use Russian telecommunications equipment in order to communicate with the Russians to evade detection from who? I I suppose the Department of Defense of the U.S. intelligence community. Jared Kushner is still a senior advisor in the White House. And so, yes, I, I agree. You, you have to be able to make these deals. And, and depending on the extent of cooperation, maybe it is actually worth it. But I do think that a little bit we've lost the thread here on, on how 
bad this is. And, and the idea that this guy really is walking away from this scot-free, it's it's pretty astounding. And, and it is a bitter pill to swallow. So keeping that in mind, and let's just wrap this segment up. Ben, go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that you pointed out that Flynn, in addition to this cooperation that he gave, in which you know one might imagine he was asked about many of these things, these hugely problematic and for many deeply offensive things that Michael Flynn was involved in. The agreement says it compelled other people to come forward and be more truthful and open and honest. Who do you think those people might be? I mean, what can we imagine are the people that once Mike Flynn started talking it got other people to be more candid and about what? And follow-up question. Does it rhyme with shmay shmi shmcfarlin? <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing. She, she have, was the first that came to my mind. I, have, I do have a soft spot. I have nothing to add to that. I, I, look, I do think there's a limited number of people who are party. And she did. To, I think there are a limited number of people who are party to those communications. And there are a relatively limited number of them who are known to have had interactions with the special counsel's office uh, as a result uh, of those and say to have told things to journalists that turned out not to be true, uh, as KT McFarland did to a certain journalist who's sitting around the table with us. And I think it is reasonable to expect that if and we know that KT McFarlane has not been charged. And so when I read that passage, my first reaction was, okay, now this is Bob Mueller kind of telling us a little bit about maybe why people in that category were not charged and that maybe a bunch of people, including KT McFarlane, may have come forward at that point and and been clear about what did and didn't happen. And given useful information because to, to remember, KT McFarlane – was the person who was on the phone with Michael Flynn telling him what to tell the Russian ambassador while she was at Mar-a-Lago with members of the transition team. So to Susan's point, if there was a direction from Donald Trump to Michael Flynn, say the following about sanctions to Sergei Kislyak, it well may have flown through KT mm, McFarlane. Right. And so th I think there you can see why if you imagine – and I, I don't want to make up facts that we don't know. But I think you could say just based on that fact pattern, you could imagine a set of things that both Mike Flynn might have proffered and KT McFarlane might have proffered that would be extremely useful to a prosecutor trying to piece together what happened either for purposes of some other criminal case or for purposes of – uh, reporting accurately what happened, you might just decide that it's much more important to have all the witnesses on the record in a, in a form that you can use and disclose in whatever format you're eventually going to proceed than it is to maximize the amount of jail time that Mike Flynn gets. I think if your name rides with, rhymes with Flared Pushner, <laughs> you might be sweating a little bit right now. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, let's move on to somebody else who's totally not sweating anymore. He is just free, unencumbered. He is speaking his mind. He's golden. He's a Democrat now. Well, small D. Well, I mean, I thought he was like, I thought he said he had changed his to Michael Cohen, changed his bill to a Democrat. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And he yeah. like loved, didn't he say he his loved life, Michelle Obama's book? He likes Michelle Obama's book. And he's reviewing his... books on Amazon now. <laughs> he has this whole new He has career. a lot of time. He's knitting. I can't wait for the Michael Cohen, like, eat, pray, love. That's <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I will believe that Michael Cohen's conversion is complete. Like when he goes and apologizes to all of the journalists, including moi, that he just hurled profanities at. He has to make amends. He He sure does because, you know, you got a ways to go to prove you're actually a small D Democrat when you intimidate reporters like that. (laughs) Nevertheless, this is not about me. (laughs) Um, So Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to another charge of lying, which apparently is very in right now uh, to plead guilty to lying. Everybody's doing it. Everyone's doing it. Um, Because, you know, you won't go to jail. Uh, This is, I think, significantly alters our understanding about an important piece of the Trump-Russia tie, namely the Trump organization's pursuit of building a tower in Moscow. We should emphasize that no one knew that the Trump organization was pursuing a deal, actually two deals, one of which they hoped would materialize, to build a development with a Trump-branded name, Trump-branded property in Moscow. Uh, in 2016. We didn't find that out until after Donald Trump took office. When we found that out, the story coming out of the Trump organization and the story that Michael Cohen, the president's former fixer, told to Congress was that, yes, we had negotiations. Yes, we were in conversations. They didn't really go anywhere. Um, I reached out to uh, a, a general email box on the Kremlin's public affairs website, never heard anything back. And at any rate, the deal basically fizzled in January 2016. Michael Cohen now says that's a lie. There were communications. There was response from the Kremlin. The Kremlin, by the way, confirmed that a few days ago, which is very interesting. Uh, and these conversations went on uh, into June 2016. So January 2016 was before the first primaries and caucuses had even happened. June 2016. 16, Donald Trump is about to be the Republican nominee for president. So it seems to me, Susan, this this really does fundamentally alter both the timeline but also the understanding. And it seems like the upshot of this is that at least according to Michael Cohen, and maybe you can speak to why we should believe him now when he was lying before, the soon-to-be nominee for president of the United States was actively engaged with the Russian government trying to pave the way to build a property in Moscow. Yeah, so I think one of this one of the things that this explains is why we saw the entire US national security establishment and frankly allied national security establishment flipping the f out in late 2016, early 2017 and we talked about it at the time that these were institutions that were raising every possible alarm and had their hair on fire. And I think that revelations like this, whenever you you go back in time, this is the kinds of things that they're responding to. You know, like we we had sort of a, an emergency podcast um, right after uh, this information was was made public late last week. And, um, you know, I'll reiterate one of the points that I, I made there, which, you know, continues to sort of be my, my primary response to this, which is that um, we shouldn't treat this. Our first instinct shouldn't be like, well, what are the what are the crimes in this? And how do we put sort of a, a legal uh, perspective on it? You know, before we go through any of that, we should just take a step back and say, this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable for somebody who is a, a nominee for a major party, a candidate, to essentially leverage his candidacy, leverage our country, leverage a position of trust in order to gain a business advantage. That is just not okay. And and I think we should be like screaming that from the mountaintops. And, and I am surprised that that hasn't gotten more sort of pushback. Uh, 
you know, the other thing is that, look, I do think that this moves us into a realm in which some of the craziest conspiracy theories, or I don't want to call them craziest conspiracy theories, the sort of the most extreme and alarming version of the Trump-Russia collusion story, some becomes significantly more plausible now. And that's not just that they're negotiating this Trump Tower Moscow deal, but that there are ongoing and regular communications. At the time that his candidacy and his nomination are, his nomination is a foregone conclusion. Right. Exactly. So we have, you know, the significance isn't necessarily that, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump considered giving Vladimir Putin this $50 million uh, penthouse. That is significant. The more immediate significance to me is Michael Cohen was in contact with Peskov, right? They're having these conversations on a regular basis. And so that does suddenly make the the notion that there is real coordination here. I just think it makes it more plausible. I think the other thing about that, that evidence of ongoing back and forth that really troubles me is that now that we know more accurately what the communication was and when, it's very clear that the Russian government has known this whole time that the president was lying to us yes. and his people were lying to us. And, you know, so and this is something that was true in the Flynn case. Like that was one small instance. The Russians knew that Flynn and the, and the administration were lying about his conversation with Kislyak. We didn't know. That was leverage they had over the administration. This is even bigger lying and even bigger leverage. And, you know, again, criminal criminal culpability aside, as a national security matter, it is really, really, really troubling. Ben, one of the things that I've also found not surprising, but it's it's worth taking note. Defenders of the president, and I, I'm thinking of, even of David Bossie and Corey Lewandowski, who were on the Skullduggery podcast, I think just the other day, have now taken to the new – the narrative keeps shifting to justify this whole deal. It's like, well, he was doing a business deal. There's nothing wrong with doing business in Russia. Well, and what he, if he lost? He needed to have business going on. Right? Precisely. And when they when pressed on the question of then why did he try to hide it, everyone goes, to, well, it's not like it's illegal. I mean it seems like – this is this is not to be keeping score about this, but like there's not a plausible way of explaining this uh, that doesn't make the president look bad and his defenders look like they're just enormous double standards here. I mean, David Bossie, who made a career off of tacking somebody for a failed real estate investment in Arkansas in the 1980s. Um, what, what is the if, if what is the plausible argument for? Uh, the president saying, there's really nothing to see here. This isn't actually a piece of leverage over me. Or is just there not one? And we should be looking at this as, yeah, they've now got something on him. And he's been trying to hide it for the better part of two years. Well, I think that is what it is. And I, I don't think there is a plausible explanation in which this is anodyne. I do think there's a plausible explanation in which it may be politically anodyne, which is that a lot of people just choose not to care. I think to a great extent, the political valence of it will probably depend on whether and how it links into the other Russia collusion story, right? So 
I I look at it and say it is, and I'm completely with Susan that the first angle to look at this through is not the legal angle. It's it's the is it acceptable that the president was pursuing a business deal with a foreign dictator during the campaign and concealing it, and then allowed or you know even if he didn't encourage allowed his personal lawyer to lie to Congress about it. Is that acceptable? The answer to that is, duh, of course not. I think the how big a deal this story is as a political matter probably depends on whether and how it interacts with the question of collusion over the hacked emails and the Russian intervention in the campaign. Now, we talked about this a bit on the emergency podcast, on the Lawfare podcast, and I made the argument, which I'm in, uh, then sort of tentatively, and I'm increasingly pretty persuaded by it, that Bob Mueller has sloughed off enough things that aren't related to the core mission of the investigation, that if he didn't regard this as pretty intricately connected to it, he would not have retained jurisdiction over it. So I do suspect that at the end of the day, we're going to learn that the business collusion story and the election collusion story are not just parallel tracks. They may be mostly parallel tracks, but there's going to be some connective tissue in between, I suspect. I think at the point at which that becomes clear, if it ever becomes clear, that uh, will be a very interesting day in terms of how this stuff uh, uh, plays. But the short answer to your question is no, there's no explanation of this that is innocent. I'm going to make a prediction um, that it might be foolish of me to make, but that the single most significant moment uh, and what will ultimately prove to be the most significant moment in Michael Cohen's cooperation has nothing to do with this plea agreement at all. It is the moment in which he stood up in court in the Southern District of New York and said not not only pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations, but said that the president of the United States directed him to commit crimes. And I want to be careful when I say this, or, or at least I want to be clear that I am being careful when I say this. If Donald Trump was not president of the United States, he would be under indictment right now because somebody who has pleaded guilty to a crime has said he directed me to commit that crime. And the, our, our, uh, the history of how these crimes are prosecuted tell us that the candidate would have been prosecuted. So that moment, which I continue to think was earth shattering in a way people haven't fully come to terms with, while all this stuff is significant, while all this stuff makes you think, gosh, we should really go back and read that dossier another time and think about what has kind of panned out. I still think that the piece that is the most threatening to the president, the most damaging to the president in terms of what Michael Cohen has to offer, probably is not related to the Russia stuff at all. And I don't even know that it's related to the Trump organization. I do think that it is that it is this campaign finance issue. Hmm. And this is the last wrap up question on this. We should believe Michael Cohen now, even though he was lying before. Why? Is it because Bob Mueller has corroborating evidence for these claims? 
it is because Bob Mueller went into court and, first of all, the statement of offense is agreed to by both parties. Mueller would not have advanced that statement to the court if he did not uh, have corroborating material, probably in the form of documents, texts, uh, recordings that Cohen made uh, that support Cohen's statements. I believe, at least in, with the respect to the Southern District of New York, there is also uh, other witnesses, as the Wall Street Journal has reported. Uh, some of the other uh, principals, uh, particularly the uh, aptly named David Pecker, uh, are also <laughs> cooperating with uh, – Why apt? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Shane. You're just having too much fun. You know, and – I think you do not, as a prosecutor, either for the Southern District of New York or for the special counsel's office, stake your reputation uh, in a battle with the president of the United States on a set of factual assertions like that on the strength of the testimony of one lying uh, former fixer for the president. You do it if you can dot every I factually and cross every T factually with a mountain of other material supporting what he says. And whose name is it on that plea agreement signing on behalf of the government? It's Robert Mueller. There you go. All right. Uh, now for something completely different. <laughs> War in Israel. Just kidding. I'm going to Israel this week. Oh, that's a great time to go, Ben. <laughs> Have you discussed this with your wife? <laughs> yes. For the rest of Have us? Have fun, honey. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I lived in Israel during the first intifada. I lived in Israel when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and was threatening to throw scuds at Israel. Ben can go to Israel for a week. I'm okay with that. All right. They have some experience with with, with tensions, which, uh, Tammy, have, in fact, uh, been rising. Uh, just in the past week or so, Israel has discovered a series of tunnels that it says were dug by Hezbollah on the border with Lebanon, and tensions have been mounting uh, with Hamas. There was this firefight that appears to be the result of, I guess, a botched raid by Israeli special forces. Yes, a botched undercover a botched operation. botched undercover operation where, I guess, they were posing as aid workers, right? So it was a says yeah. Hamas and they had fake yeah. IDs. It seemed like this was going to spark a massive conflagration. We might be looking at another war in Gaza. So put this in perspective for us. I mean, how bad is this? Should we be very worried? Or is there reason to uh, maybe think that this is not as dire as it would look from the coverage? So it's not unusual for conflicts, including in the Middle East, including uh, for Israel, to start through a miscalculation or a mistake. And we nearly had a Gaza war two weeks ago because of this undercover operation by Israeli operatives inside the Gaza Strip who were discovered and ended up in a firefight with Hamas people in the Strip. And after that, uh, and and one of those uh, special operators died as a result of the firefight. And after that, Hamas and Islamic Jihad lobbed more than 500 rockets into Israeli territory. So that nearly led to another round of Israel-Hamas conflict. Uh, the fact that it didn't led, among other things, to the resignation of the Israeli defense minister from the cabinet and almost brought down the Israeli government. So that was the result of an error, right? Nobody wanted that particular conflagration at that particular moment, which is why Israel and Hamas were able to quickly patch it up and broker a ceasefire. 
Uh, What happened over the last couple of days is a little bit different. This is a case where the Israeli government chose to undertake an operation along its border with Lebanon to uh, uncover and destroy tunnels that they said Hezbollah had been digging underneath the border into Israeli territory. And at the same time, Prime Minister Netanyahu flew on very short notice to Europe to meet up with Secretary of State Pompeo and speak to him face to face about the Hezbollah threat to Israel. So Israel chose to do this operation at this moment and chose to do it while Netanyahu was speaking to Pompeo. All of this, I think, as a way of throwing a really bright spotlight on the Hezbollah threat to Israel, uh, which is something that is making the Israelis incredibly and increasingly nervous. Now, over the course of the long civil war in Syria, the Iranians have been using the uh, their increased presence in Syria to transfer increasingly sophisticated missiles to Hezbollah through Syrian territory. And this has upset the Israelis, and we've seen the Israelis carry out a regular series of airstrikes over Syrian territory to try and prevent these transfers and issue a lot of warnings about Iran's presence in Syria. But they haven't been able to stop it. What's happened more recently is that there seems to be some evidence that sophisticated missiles and other sophisticated weapons are actually being flown directly into Lebanon, into the Beirut International Airport and going to Hezbollah that way. And at the same time, the Israelis have been constrained from air operations over Syria since this Russian jet was downed a few months ago and the Russians brought into Syria more sophisticated air defense. And so the Israelis have had to worry about whether in trying to shoot at Iranian weapon supplies, they might accidentally kill Russians. What this means is that Israel has fewer tools to deal with the threat posed by Hezbollah It is more worried that the Russians are not going to help it deal with this threat. And it's concerned that its next round of conflict with Hezbollah, which, you know, is spoken of as inevitable, um, will be much, much worse because Hezbollah's capabilities are so much greater. More sophisticated precision guided missiles and more battlefield experience from fighting in Syria. And so the Israelis are trying to do what they can to degrade Hezbollah capability, but they're also trying to rattle the saber, Um, just as they did with Iran before the nuclear negotiations were launched early in the Obama administration. The Israeli government is talking a lot about the prospect of war with Hezbollah as a way of getting international attention focused on the problem. And they hope, I think, putting pressure on Iran to tamp down its support for Hezbollah. Uh, this, this makes me think that, not to be overly cynical about this, but this is exactly what Mike Pompeo wants to hear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I mean- <laughs> Netanyahu goes off to have a conversation with Pompeo, but Pompeo is looking for reasons to say Iran has increased hostilities in the region, which it sounds like they demonstrably have. And that is obviously quite alarming. But, you know, it, it, this seems like it, it's kind of in a way, I don't want to say it's a gift, but it's a very useful argument to the Trump administration to say, look, I mean, this is we were right to pull out of the agreement. Iran cannot be trusted. This is unbelievable hostility, all, all the rest of it, right? I mean, this is and it must play very well for Netanyahu at home, right? Yeah, except that the threat from Hezbollah is one he doesn't have a good answer to. The last war between Israel and Hezbollah in 2006 was very, very costly, very much for southern Lebanon, but also for 
Israelis in the north of the country who were subject to a barrage of missiles from Hezbollah. Hezbollah now has many, many more missiles, many of longer range that can reach into the heart of the most populated part of Israel, uh, and they can fire them with greater accuracy. And uh, Israeli missile defense simply can't respond to the uh, to the scope of that kind of attack. So I don't and think tunnels, right? And and these tunnels, which is a threat that they think they now have some answers to. I think, look, if you're one of those people who believes that the Trump administration, you know, driven by Mike Pompeo and John Bolton is just hellbent on a war with Iran, then, yeah, you could see this as a gift uh, that Netanyahu wants to highlight this threat right now. Um, You could see it as going along with Brian Hook's speech last week about Iranian missile transfers to the Houthis and others in the region. It just adds to the list of sins, right? It creates a sense of urgency around the threat. But I actually am not one of those people who thinks that the administration is looking for a war with Iran. I think they're looking to yell about Iran, but I don't think they actually want to do much about Iran. And I think they are right now very focused on trying to preserve their work with the Saudis against Iran and Yemen. The last thing they need is Netanyahu tugging them on the sleeve and saying, no, 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 you have to help me in Lebanon. So I'm going to break the podcast fourth wall here. Whoa. Radical, radical. (laughs) When we were planning for this episode and what we wanted to talk about, I sent a note saying, I think it would be really good to have Tammy Tammy walk us through what the F is going on in Israel. (laughs) And Tammy responded by saying, oh, you mean all this stuff about the tunnels and, you know, gave uh, the explanation you just heard. Um, I wasn't talking about that at all. (laughs) I meant, is Benjamin Netanyahu going to be indicted? So I am also curious, either to the extent that a deteriorating domestic situation, one that, gosh, starting to kind of mirror our own, uh, has sort of foreign policy ramifications, or just because I don't understand what's happening, is Benjamin Netanyahu going to be indicted? <laughs> or is it a war or an election, as we asked in the uh, in the opening? Absolutely. Well, and, and to be fair, when you wrote that in your email, Susan, I wasn't sure which one you meant, I guessed. And you were kind enough not to correct me. So thank you for the generosity. And we think we've got problems. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's funny because the response of some Lebanese uh, observers to this his, this Israeli operation against Hezbollah yesterday was, oh, see, Netanyahu's just trying to distract from his domestic troubles. No question he is facing some serious domestic troubles. Uh, the, so what happened is that the police recommended that he be indicted for corruption in, I believe, the third third of four investigations that have been ongoing. But that recommendation is just the beginning of a of a phase that will stretch probably for months before the attorney general actually has to make a decision about whether to indict. So it doesn't have any immediate political ramifications, except in the sense that his coalition partners and his political adversaries all are starting to smell blood in the water. And, you know, in any parliamentary system, there's a point at which if everyone thinks the government might be about to fall, they want to be the first one to jump ship. So, yeah, this will probably collapse at some point in the next few months. The Israeli criminal justice system has a lot of interesting quirks. But one of them is that it has this – I don't think it has any analog in the American 
justice system, which is when the FBI or when the Israeli police makes a recommendation pre-indictment that triggers an adversarial process that is almost like quasi-judicial between the state prosecutor and the defense that is resolved in this case by the attorney general as to whether an indictment should proceed. And those cases take months to uh, ripen and before things mature to the point of an actual decision. And even as, as Tammy was just saying, even before this case resulted in this recommendation, there was a recommendation to indict Sarah Netanyahu and two other recommendations to indict Bibi Netanyahu. And so it does feel like it's moving in that direction. But you know, the wheels of justice really do grind slow in, in this regard. And the question of whether the government will fall is in the first instance a political question, not a legal one. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Tammy, you have one. Well, I have one that is uh, tightly connected to what we were discussing earlier. That is the uh, the Flynn sentencing memo, because as we noted, there are these mysterious, intriguing redactions throughout this document. And one that got a ton of attention uh, on Twitter last night is an entire paragraph that is redacted, but for its little beginning that says, the defendant also provided useful information concerning, and then there are like 10 lines of blacked out text. So, um, dot, dot, dot. dot. <laughs> right. So it really is like the, be- the opening of a gothic novel or uh, some kind of crime mystery. But, um, but what I loved was the way people responded to this blacked out paragraph the, because it's so graphic. Uh, and and so my object is some lovely, uh, hilarious tweets uh, comparing the blacked up paragraph to the new American flag or, <laughs> or uh, one that says that's a lot of black bars just to say P tape. <laughs> um, Twitter really went to town on this one, guys. And I have to say, uh, in the midst of this sober, sober disclosure, I appreciated the laugh. Thanks. Nice. Maybe it just says, the P <laughs> Just a bunch of exclamation points. <laughs> yeah, because we know the president likes exclamation it's true. points. <laughs> I think even Bob Mueller, unflappable as he is, would probably, if he found the P tape, put it in the document like that. <laughs> um, Bob Mueller comes to the head of the conference table, sits down solemnly. <laughs> Team, the P tape is real. <laughs> Uh, ben. So I want to give a shout out to Rudy Giuliani today for his inestimable service to Lawfare as an institution, oh, uh, albeit in It was pro bono. Yeah, it was pro bono work <laughs> that Giuliani did on behalf of us. So as listeners probably know, uh, Giuliani has a little Twitter problem. Uh, and <laughs> like he doesn't know how it works. Well, he doesn't really understand how Twitter works. But also he does not understand the importance of inserting a space after a period because if you don't insert a space after a period and uh, the letters that come after the period are a a top-level domain, Twitter thinks you've articulated a URL and inserts a link. And so famously the other day, uh, Giuliani tweeted something with a 
what turned out to be a link that was, of course, a dead link. It didn't lead anywhere. And some jokester uh, took out a took that URL and inserted a anti-Trump message, uh, which Giuliani then got very upset about. <sighs> Unbeknownst to anyone, including us, somebody, perhaps the same trickster, perhaps a different trickster. Went, some wag. <laughs> some wag. And I want to stress that nobody at Lawfare had anything to do with this. Somebody uh, went back. We aren't this funny. We aren't this funny. <laughs> Went back and looked for prior Rudy Giuliani tweets with dot something and came across a tweet from 9-15-2018 in which Rudy Giuliani tweeted, hashtag real news, Woodward says no evidence of collusion dot so, <laughs> note that there's no space, does Manafort's team, et cetera, et cetera, the collusion dot so turns out, got turned into a link, <laughs> and somebody connected it to Lawfare's <clears throat> Russia connection page. Oh. Um, and the result is that you have here, and we will share this on the site, Rudy Giuliani tweeting uh, and referring <laughs> the world to Lawfare's coverage <gasps> of tr- Lawfare Russe. God uh, bless you, Rudy. Uh, by accident. Um, <laughs> and we don't know when this happened. We assume it was in conjunction with the previous one. But people started tweeting us about it last night. Uh, and this morning, we had to, Quinta had to tell a reporter that uh, uh, no lawfare did not do this. Um, but we, we we wouldn't do that much work just to be but funny. But we, we salute whoever <laughs> did do it because it's pretty first class trolling. And funny. I just want to say thank you, Rudy. Uh, we'll we'll buy you a beer. Uh, We're happy just, to be the beneficiaries of any pranks, shenanigans, tomfoolery, <laughs> or promotion, et cetera. Since you don't think sponsorship. Just two observations on this. <clears throat> one, Rudy Giuliani in a subsequent tweet after the first one, which was a .in domain, um, tweeted in anger at Twitter that someone had crashed into his <laughs> messages and hijacked them and taken them over. I would also like to note that among the uh, many services that Rudy Giuliani charges people money for, on which he claims to be an expert, is computer security. He was Trump's cybersecurity advisor. They crashed into my DMs. That's that's deep expertise. They crashed into my tweets. I just want to point yeah. out they that my tweets. .so is the top-level domain for Somalia. Oh. <laughs> All right. Give oh. I just read it as collusion. .so. You can get some collusion tourism <laughs> in Mogadishu. <laughs> Susan, do you have an object? I do. Mine's kind of dumb after that. Not to say that that wasn't dumb, but it might be dumb on our part. What are you part? talking about? So yesterday, um, I'm sitting in the chair at CNN waiting to do a, a hit on television, um, and uh, in my ear, I hear the melodic tones of one Shane Harris without even knowing it. He was, we were on our little hit together. And so I took a picture of Rational Security coming to you in all mediums at all times. The next step in our world domination. We're everywhere. um, Is achieved. Did you think as you were sitting there like, oh shit, are we on the podcast? (laughs) What's he doing here? (laughs) I was going to be like, I don't know what that guy was talking about before. (laughs) I don't know who he thinks he is, but I just associate myself. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of uh, this hit right here. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website. 
Thanks, Shane. You're welcome. You can also find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a nice rating and review. It really helps people to find the show, and we really appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Flirt Pushcher and... <laughs> you can't even say it. <laughs> okay, go, go, go. Music this week by Flurid Pushter and Maisie McSchmartland <laughs> with their new holiday album, Singing Like Christmas Canaries. <laughs> All right. Winner, winner. winner. <laughs> with Sophia Yan on keys. I would buy that holiday album in a second. Uh, I want to listen to the whole thing. Oh, boy, from beginning to end and back again. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Happy Hanukkah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.